This Week in Startups is brought to you by Vanta. Compliance and security shouldn't be a deal breaker for startups to win new business. Vanta makes it easy for companies to get a SOC 2 report fast. Twist listeners can get $1,000 off for a limited time at vanta.com slash twist. Embroker. The Embroker Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off of traditional insurance today at Embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off by using offer code twist. And our crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash twist. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups, the podcast that we've been doing for over a decade and over 1,100 episodes. And we talk on this podcast about technology, startups, investing in startups. But we don't delve too much into public equities because, well, I've never been a public equity guy. But lo and behold, 10 years later, I've got two companies, three companies that have gone public. All these SPACs are happening. And I find myself drawn to maybe understanding the public markets a little bit better than I do as a private market investor. And a friend of uh, mine said, hey, you have to read this book. Uh, this guy uh, has a lot of common thoughts with you do about capitalism and maybe problem solving. And I read this book. It's a tiny little book. There it is. It's not that thick. How many pages we're talking about here? I think it's a four hour listen. I listened to it. Yeah, under 200 pages. And the book is called Common Sense, The Investor's Guide to Equality, Opportunity, and Growth. And it's by a guy named Joel Greenblatt. Now, if you're in the stock market and you know who he is because he's written a bunch of books that were bestsellers and that became basically Bibles of people who were into public stocks. Things uh, you may have heard of this book, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, little book that beats the market, little book that still beats the market, The Big Secret for the Small Investor. Um, and he is the co-founder and managing principal and co-chief investment offer, uh, officer, tons of titles there, from Gotham, Gotham Asset Management for the past 12 years. My understanding is, Joel, that you used to run other people's money and now you run just your own. Uh, welcome to the program. Did I get that? Did I get that intro right? Uh, well, been, I started in 1985, so ran outside mm -hmm. money for 10 years and then started running outside money again in 2009. Got it. So you took a little break in the middle. Yes. And according to my knowledge of public market investors who run funds and stuff like that, which is basically limited to what I've seen in popular fiction, like on Billions, when Axelrod says, screw it, I don't want to deal with all these LPs anymore and running other people's money. I'm going to run my own and do it my way. And then he goes back saying, you know what, maybe I do want to run other people's money. How do you make that decision? Is it is it just you're annoyed at the LPs or you feel too much anxiety about running other people's money? You kind of went into it in the book a little bit of this really hard decision of, and, and I think about this a lot, and it, it falls into being staked in a poker match as well. You It can affect your play as a picker if you're betting your money versus other people's money and perhaps in a bad way. So explain how other people's money factors into your behavior as an investor. 
Well, that's an interesting question. So I ran outside. I started in 1985, my own firm, Gotham Capital, ran outside money for 10 years. We did very well. Uh, and we had done well enough to uh, keep our staff and return the outside capital and continue to run our internal capital. Uh, the reason we, we returned it is that um, uh, a number of reasons. One, we're very concentrated investors. So uh, it's quite volatile. Uh, I have a partner, Rob Goldstein, who joined me in 1989. And every couple of years when, you know, when I say concentrated, there are six or eight names and that's concentrated in the, uh, or 80% of our portfolio, that's concentrated in the public markets. And every uh, couple of years, you'd wake up and lose 20 or 30% of your net worth. And since we know what we own, and that's just when one or two things don't go your way for a little bit or you're wrong or, you know, a lot of things happen. And when you have outside investors, that feels bad. You know, mm. and uh, so my investors were great to us, but it got to a point where uh, I love the business of trying to figure things out and investing in them. But I think the added pressure of having other people's money uh, didn't make it as much fun. So when we had the opportunity to keep our staff and continue to run our internal capital and return the outside capital, we did it. And it was interesting. And I got five kids. And so it was nice not to have that pressure as well. It is an added pressure when you're placing a bet and you're saying, man, I know that this one, I believe in this one, but I know there's all this downside to it as well, right? There, there's some amount of risk or it wouldn't be a bet. It wouldn't be, there, there can't be gains without losses. But when you've got other people's money, you're like, ah, I don't know if they would make that bet, right? Or or do I want to, I would make this bet. I want that uh, you know, alpha, beta, whatever, the, the delta of what could happen and all this craziness uh, when you're making bets. But you, you start thinking about the other person in their mindset, and that kind of gets in your head, doesn't it? Well, you know, uh, you, you were saying that you're, you're not as experienced in the public markets, and the public markets gives you a quote every day. And that's very <laughs> harmful. And, you know, if you lived in your house and they were giving you assessments every single month, you know, of whether it went up or down, it might bother you a little bit. And in the stock market, you get it every day. And so whether you're right or wrong, we're started, we're at least trying to look out two, three years. And, you know, if they give you estimates every day, when people are emotional and they get excited, they'll pay up for things. And when they get excited the wrong way and more depressed, they'll, they'll sell things. Uh, ben Graham, who, you know, was Warren Buffett's teacher, said, you know, you're really in business with Mr. Market and you never know what side of the bed he's going to get up in the morning. He's a pretty emotional guy. And so you get those quotes. It's a little different than being on the private side where you know what you own. You're thinking longer term. Uh, stock market, unfortunately, get quotes every day. So it makes it a little more difficult to keep your head. And yeah, that scorecard is great when it's going up. But like you said, so much of it is emotion. And then you have all these outside factors uh, and there is this very weird phenomenon when things are going up, people want to sell and book the win. And when people, things are going down, they want to stick with it. <laughs> there's a, there's investor psychology of let's call it your LPs or my LPs. They get skittish and they make bad short term decisions. When you and I know, I think, you know, you having obviously much more experience than I do, but, uh, you know, I've been at it for 11 years investing in private companies almost overwhelmingly with a winner you just want to sit on your hands and take the win but then everybody when we have a winner in our portfolio says are we selling are we selling in secondary are we going to take some chips off the table and i'm like i'm not sure you want to take chips off the table right now because this thing's a rocket ship if anything we might want to put more fuel into it can you talk a little bit about 
What you learned as an investor for over three decades um, in terms of sitting on your hands and not selling versus this phenomenally bad behavior of neophytes and short-term thinkers where they sell the winners and they hold and they and they dollar cost average into losers. Sure. So, you know, uh, Warren Buffett would always say, you know, oh, Michael Jordan's doing too well. It's like, let's get rid of him. You know, he's, he's taking up too much of your portfolio. You know, he's, he's scoring too many points. So let's <laughs> get rid of him. And, uh, you know, that's kind of sometimes the thinking. But, you know, we're, you know, traditionally when I got started, uh, I got started doing more special situations and uh, interesting um extraordinary transactions. So really, it's I described it in my first book, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. I uh, My in-laws used to uh, shop uh, at tag sales and country auctions and yard sales in Connecticut when they went up there for the weekends. And I described what they were doing. And when they found a painting like a yard sale or a country auction, their question uh, generally wasn't, is this painter going to be the next Picasso? Their question was, oh, was there a similar painting by the same artist just sold at auction for two or three times what I can buy this one for? So very different skill sets. You know, they're both good skill sets to have. You know, is this guy going to be the next Picasso? That would be great. That's mm. a that's a lot, much tougher nut. If you can actually, uh, what we used to do is look off the beaten path for bargains that other people weren't looking for. Uh, that's more of what I uh, I was doing in my earlier career. Now we're looking, as you're discussing, uh, buying good businesses that are cheap. And that's really how Warren Buffett evolved in his career. Uh, he started buying just bargains. And then he said, well, if I can buy a good business cheap, that's much better. And, and, and our investment style over the years has evolved much closer to that. And in which case, you can stay with the businesses. You know, if you're just uh, sort of dumpster diving for things that are cheap, you know, holding it for the long term, if it's not in a great business, may hurt you. But if you are investing in good businesses that have good long-term prospects, then, of course, uh, it lends itself to being a long-term investor. And so it's very different ways, a lot of different ways to make money. Uh, we've done them all and they're both good. I don't, I don't, I, you know, I taught at Columbia for over two decades and, you know, MBAs and I teach uh, all those methods. I, I am agnostic as to uh, smart ways to go about uh, making a profit and bo both work. How do they differ in terms of skill set and also timing? Because, I'm just taking an assumption here, but it feels like before the quants and, you know, a large number of people participating in the market, uh, retail investors, which we saw in the dot-com era up until the, the, the Great Recession in 2007-8, and now we're seeing again because of this little company I invested in before they launched called Robinhood, which now has 15 million traders or something like that in the market. How do, do these strategies differ when you get over participation in the market at the same time as the number of companies that have gone public gets cut in half. These are outside factors that must impact how you play your game because you're not playing your game in a vacuum. There are other people at the poker table. I want you to answer that question when we get back from this quick break. 
Why is SOC 2 compliance critically important? You hear it all the time. SOC 2, SOC 2. Well, if you don't have your SOC 2 buttoned up, you can't close major companies as partners and as customers. It's that simple. And guess what? Vanta is going to give you $1,000 off your Vanta compliance uh, process. And this is something that's very important. What they're going to do when you get your SOC 2 with Vanta is they're going to continually test against technical and non-technical SOC 2 requirements. And they also have partnered with over two dozen auto firms who have been trained to file SOC 2 reports directly in Vanta. On average, the Vanta customers get their SOC 2 compliance in just two, three, four weeks. Compare that with three, four, or five months without Vanta, and you understand why everybody's going crazy about it. I just had a twist listener, uh, John, email me. He's got the drone startup, Kitty Hawk. You may have heard of them. They're very famous. And uh, he says Vanta was essential in helping them get SOC 2 compliance up and running. Uh, And he loves their tie-ins to Google, Slack, GitHub, and AWS, which are all essential apps that run Kitty Hawk's awesome business. Vanta, again, is giving Twist listeners a $1,000 discount on their subscription right now. And I know many of you are taking advantage of it. V-A-N-T-A dot com slash twist. Vanta dot com slash twist for $1,000 off. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Welcome back. Uh, We have a really big deal of a guest on the program, Joel Greenblatt. Now, I didn't know him, and I feel stupid that I didn't know him because I'm not into the public markets. The public markets I find so confusing because there are these stocks that act weird. And I don't understand it when these companies get so big and they start doing all this funky accounting. All I know is three or four people in a room, they have a good product and I think they're smart. I make a bet. But you do this very different thing in a market and a casino where you have outside influences. And before I went to break, I was thinking about these two outside influences in relation to the two types of investing you have. And I guess we could vector them in a a two by two quadrant here and go through it, which is number of market participants in a market in relation to the two investment strategies, um, both of which are really one's bargain basement, I guess you could talk about finding bargains. And I guess the other one would be buying great businesses. When you put those against a small number of companies in the market and a large number of people wanting to participate, that's got to screw things up, right? Well, it's interesting. There's another data point that we should throw in there that the okay. market cap now, even though there are half as many publicly traded companies as, and even less than that, when I, then when I got started, there were even more. Uh, the market cap of those companies is much larger mm. uh, than the uh, market cap relative to, let's say, GDP or something like that than, than when we had more companies. They were just smaller. So the market cap, the total market cap of the market is actually bigger on a relative basis than it was 20 years ago when there were twice as many companies to choose from. Uh, and if you like to look for bargains, I'd rather have more choices and especially mm. more small cap companies where people aren't looking. So I think that ha- has impinged on, you know, smaller investors. But the S&P 500, you know, there are, there are over 3,000 uh, publicly traded companies uh, now in the U.S. The S&P 500, though, is approximately 90% of the market cap of the mm. entire amount. So the, the remaining 2,500 companies are only 10%, something along those lines. So, uh, you know, when we talk about the numbers, that's, that's really how it stacks up. Uh, what I think is a shame, to be honest, is the high cost of being a public company. You know, it costs between 2 and $4 million to be public. So, if you're a small company, you want to go public and you only have uh, 
10 million in sales or 20 million in sales, you can forget about it. You, you have public company expenses of two or three or $4 million a year, just, you know, making all the filings and, and, and it makes no sense. You know, and even if you had 10 million in profits, I'm not talking about sales, 10 million in profits, you also can't be public. That's 20 or 30% of your, you know, net income. It also doesn't make sense to be public. And that's a real shame because. They, they've tried to make some changes. It's obviously hasn't been effective. And that's why you see a shrinking of the amount of companies. So much regulation has uh, let small companies not be able to access the, the stock market in the way they should. And that takes away dynamism and a lot of other things that the public markets could. So I think there's a lot of uh, over-regulation there. I think they've tried to make some corrections with all kinds of different things. But I just you know, now that you're giving me some place to complain, I I would complain about that, that I think that there should it's outrageous, be outrageous, yeah. I mean, you look at other markets that are, you know, not as robust as ours, and that do not have the same legacy of freedom that America has that's ingrained into our system. I'm thinking specifically of Australia, Japan, and the UK, where I get pinged constantly by all kinds of weird fugazi people who are like, we can take companies public with 10 million in revenue, 15 million in revenue, and it costs, literally, I just have this email from somebody who's trying to get me to move some of our startups to UK or Australia, not move them, but, but you know, to float them in those markets, even Japan, you can float a company for 10, 20 million dollars in revenue, and they're like, it's $300,000. And we are the, we are the tip of the entrepreneurial economic spear for the entire planet, for entire humanity, and we are ankling ourselves. We've literally ankled our economic system in order to protect people from losing money. This makes no sense. No, I agree with you. And they, they've made some efforts to have these uh, small markets uh, where there's less regulation and you can raise a little bit of money. I would just say those efforts are tiny in comparison with what they should be. And so hopefully they'll expand those at some point because as you're su suggesting, uh, it's a great country. It's a great place to do business for the most part still, no matter who's in charge. And at least it's better than most other places. And, you know, it'd be great, you know, right now entrepreneurs can raise money, but you have to be in certain techie businesses or certain hot businesses that, you know, private equity guys will or, or VC guys want to on a back. And so it's not not so easy for everybody, just a, a select few. So I think a public market would democratize that a lot more. And, you know, I wish there were more public companies and, you know, hopefully that'll, that'll turn a little bit. In your era, in the in the early days of your era, when you were in the game, you had these incredible companies like the Home Depots and the FedExes. They went public at very low market caps. What were the companies that you bet on uh, or that you wish you had bet on and passed on in that early era when there were two, three times as many public companies that worked out and that would have been able to go public, that wouldn't have been able to go public now? Yeah, I'm not going to get into that. I mean, if I talk about all the things that I missed over well, the years, you know, it's, uh, no, I mean, you know, I, I would really have to think long and hard, of course. <laughs> I, I, there's gotta be one that got away came. that, there's gotta be one that got away that just burns. Well, I certainly looked at Apple a number of times during, you know, its life, you know, even, even after it got crushed after the internet bubble and, and, 
you know, still had a chance uh, when Steve Jobs came back. And, you know, there are a lot, a lot of stories of people who did buy it then and, you know, what that turned into. And obviously, they didn't even have the iPhone at the time and everything else. But you you could bet on the jockey. And, uh, yep. you know, there was the opportunity there. So that's when a you replay one. that one in your head, because we all as poker players replay the hand that they played incorrectly or they played suboptimally. What's the lesson you take forward from that? Yeah, I think you can't look at the current metrics so much. You really have to look forward and say, what's the market opportunity for this business? You know, it's it's kind of like another one I missed, you know, in the 80s when I saw it and it looked like a great business was Walmart. Mm. So, you know, if you look at the metro metrics for Walmart when it has 50 stores, uh, if it has the prospects to open a thousand or two thousand stores, the metrics when it has 50 stores don't mean a lot. Yeah. So just missing that and even if you paid what sounded like a higher price for those 50 stores but realize no they actually have a model that can be expanded 20 30 times and that's much simpler than figuring out you know the next tech stock or something that's just you know multiplication skills uh Mm. so you know those are the ones that also bother me because uh, you know what i tell my students is i've done quite well in the markets not only because when i started uh in the early 80s the market hadn't gone up in 13 years so any idiot who started then uh you know that was a good time uh, to get started but also we've done pretty well and uh, you know i made you know my partner and i always laugh we made so many mistakes and if we worked for somebody else how many times we would have been fired you know for doing stupid things and still we did well uh and so i find that should be encouraging to my students anyway and so i always tell that story yeah i mean i don't concentrate on the ones i miss woulda coulda shoulda it only really matters uh especially when you're looking at the stock market what you actually did and if you if so there's always plenty of errors of omission and if you can minimize the errors of commission as Mm -hmm. buffett would say that's really what to concentrate on so uh buffett's famous line is there's no called strikes on wall street you can let uh 20 go by maybe you should have bought six of them but if the one you bought works out that work that works out well too so yeah uh, that's in the way i look game, at it yeah if you in a poker game if you fold a bunch of hands and you hit the flop it's okay don't worry about it like all these people are, who turn over their how do you play cards joe i get the sense you play poker uh, uh, I, I play poker. I'm uh, just for fun. I'm not. Uh, yeah. But when I, you I know win- who's good, so I don't like to lose my money doing that. Yeah. But you ever have that 10 jack suited and you're just like, I could, this is on the bubble. I could play it. And then you watch the flop and it comes down jack, jack 10. And you're like, oh my God, I'm an idiot. And it's like, mm, you wouldn't be an idiot if it came down, you know, like ace, king, and brick. You know, <laughs> like you, you got, you, you dodged a bullet. You can't look backwards like that. When we get back on this uh, from, uh, this quick break. I want to talk to you about education. You start the book out talking about education and you are on fire in this opening chapter. You are tilted to use a poker analogy about the state of education, which I see as a trend. Mike Bloomberg, anybody who's done well in the markets or in business or in capitalism, when they see the state of education, They lose their minds and they're appalled, but you have great ideas as well about education. I want to talk uh, in the next segment about some amazing ideas and fights you've had about charter charter schools. And then I want to ask you about income sharing agreements, something I've been looking deeply at and made a couple of investments on when we get back on This Week in Startups. 
Hey, everybody. I want to take a minute to thank Embroker for sponsoring This Week in Startups and supporting us all year long. What a great company. And it's very simple. You need to have insurance. I don't know how many times I got to talk to you about this. You have to have insurance for your company. It's time to grow up and it's time to save money and to do it online quickly and easily. And Brokers Technology will let you save a ton of time and a ton of money. Prices are 20% lower and you get better coverage than all these crazy incumbents who are slow. That's not what you want. You want sorry insurance so if you get hacked you're covered you want dno insurance directors and officers you're the officers of the company not like police officers officers as in executives and directors are the people on your board you need dno if you're going to have a board if you're going to have officers in a company so that if something happens and you get sued you're going to be covered and errors and omission insurance this is called eno this means if you make a mistake and Major customers are going to ask for E&O insurance if they want to buy your product. And finally, this Employment Practices Liability, EPL. So you're going to talk to your attorney about cyber, DNO, ENO, and finally EPL. And the best place to get insurance today is that Embroker.com slash twist, E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R.com slash twist, where if you use the offer code twist, you will get 10% off. They do a great job. They do many of my companies in broker.com slash twist. Get that 10% off using the offer code twist. All right. I want you to stop what you're doing right now. I want you to go to Amazon Audible or your local bookseller, whatever you prefer. Get the audio book, get the book. It's called Common Sense, the Investor's Guide to Equality, not Equity, Equality, Opportunity and Growth. And uh, it's a bit about markets, but it's also about how to solve society's biggest problems. If I were looking at this book, Joel, and I didn't know you, say you're thinking about running for office at some point. You ever think about that? Uh, no, actually. Uh, I thought about writing a book, which I did. Uh, you know, there's, <laughs> I guess, between looking for power or influence, I'd rather have influence and, you know, maybe have some people who are braver than I am to... Uh, give them some ideas uh, or at least the way an investor would look at the world to try to to try to fix some of the problems that you know everyone pretty much sees so you start out with education in the book i thought this was actually along with your minimum wage thoughts in the book two things that i have been obsessed about the minimum wage and education because they are both so broken and it's so easy to fix and everybody believes that these are intractable problems that cannot be fixed, which is bizarre because you and I come from a world in which we deal with people who obsess over solutions. And in those two spaces, people seem to have lost their creativity or belief in testing things. When you look at education and you look at charter schools, and I know you've been involved in uh, charter schools and you're in New York, my hometown, and Mike Bloomberg fought this fight. Tell us what your experience was in trying to just make it a little bit more equal and fair because the people who are at the the other end of this bad trade, of this corrupt crony system are the, the most vulnerable in our society, the poor, the disenfranchised. What did you learn about education when you started rolling up your sleeves? Sure. Well, you know, first you have to look at the problem, what, what, what's going on, or at least acknowledge there is a problem. So uh, if you took a look at our top 50 urban centers and you looked at the kids who are low income or minority, 
their odds of graduating college, which supposedly is the goal of our system, whether it's right or wrong is another question, but it's the goal of our system. Uh, the chance that uh, if you're poor in, or a uh, minority, low income or a minority in one of our major cities, your chance of graduating college is one out of 11. <sighs> All right. So failure rate of 10 out of 11. We know that college graduates earn 70% more than non-college graduates. So we know uh, people care about that. And the thing, I guess, that's most disappointing that people don't realize is that it's those 10 out of 11 that are failing. It's not because of lack of ability. I'm involved with a a charter school uh, network called the Success Network. It's run by a woman named Eva Moskowitz, and she's, you know, one of the great geniuses of our time. But those 20,000 kids are 87 percent minority. Uh, close to 80% uh, free and reduced lunch. Those kids as a group would be the number one school district in New York State. They'd beat the kids from Scarsdale, the kids from Great Neck. They'd be number one. Uh, Over 90% read and do math at uh, grade level, which is well more than double uh, the regular schools. If you just took the group of kids who are currently homeless that are at success, they beat all the kids from Scarsdale and Great Neck and all the top school districts in the state as well. Uh, so, the, so I, and then it, I also talked about a district school that's run incredibly well. It's run by, uh, he just retired, but this principal, uh, his name is Jack Spatola. It's uh, in one of the poorest districts in Brooklyn. Uh, and in his school, 99% of the kids pass the math test. of the kids pass the English test, but I just gave you the stats for the, for the kids who have disabilities. Okay. Mm. So 99% of the kids with disabilities at his school passed the math test, 94 passed the English test. Uh, Over 90% of the kids who are English language learners pass the English test. The equivalent statistic in their other district schools is 9%. Hold on. So my... Yeah, there's some insight there. These you're saying these are people with disabilities. Are we talking about physical disabilities, mental disabilities, learning disabilities? They're they're uh, they're all different kinds, but they're usually learning disabilities. So wait, wait, you're so saying the learning disability school? The kids in his school that have learning disabilities outperform the other kids in the district who do not have learning disabilities by more than two to one. Yeah. That makes no sense. Wait a second. You're saying the people who literally are coming to the table with a handicap that literally have a diagnosable learning disability beat their peers without that. What do you take from that? What should well, one take from that? Well, I said uh, th- this is uh, the, the I found it because uh, success had uh, when you look at fourth grade test scores, success had 18 of the top 25 elementary schools. They have 47 schools at success that 18 of the top 25, uh, six of the others uh, were gifted and talented schools means you had to test into them. Hmm. So there was one school left. It was a district school, a regular district school in a poor district. I said, who the heck are those guys? And of course, uh, it was the school I just described, uh, run by a gentleman, Jack Spatolo, had been the principal for 34 years. And, uh, you know, my conclusion, he's probably the best principal in the state. And that's, and you can't reproduce that. Leadership. Uh, you know, he's the, the average, Steve Jobs. Yeah, the average 
principal will be average. I mean, you can't escape that. But what it shows me is with the right supports, whether you got to go to that, you know, charter network that I talked about and all the great scores there, or uh, if you had it, you got a chance to go to a great school. Uh, what that said to me is these kids can do it with the right supports. And that's huge. So if 10 over 11 are failing, it's not because they can't do it. And, and I took that and ran with it and said, with the right supports. And, and the way our school districts are set up is, uh, by definition, if you are low income, you go to the worst schools. Because anyone who has means who can move out of the best school district do. I mean, uh, people with means are just the lowest income, the, who are not one of the lowest income. They have school choice. They can send their kids to private school. They can move to a better uh, a district with a better school. They can afford the more expensive home. And literally, our home prices are correlated with the school outcomes. So I happen to live in the Bay Area in a district that has the best middle school in all of California. The home prices are 15 or 20% more because of that fact. Because we are one, two, or three in the rankings for elementary school and middle school. Right. So what automatically happens is it gets sorted that way. If, you, if there's a bad school in your district and uh, people move out who can afford to move out and who's left is the lowest income kids go to the worst schools. Uh, there's a big fight, as you mentioned, against uh, opening charters. Charters, uh, you can get in through lottery, open lottery. And so that's one way out. But uh, there's big fights. Uh, the best the best charters are in New York, Massachusetts, California. Big fights not to have any more charters in all those areas. Why? Uh, Why are people fighting success? This makes no sense. If anything, we should be studying success like you and I do for a living and placing more bets on the strategies that have previously won. That certainly makes sense to me. There, uh, why don't we say without getting into some big battle that there are a lot of entrenched interests in the system uh it's a soviet style system where there are no penalties for doing a bad job and 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 uh so people who are in that system like to keep their uh benefits i don't i don't want to get into too big a fight because i'm really about no solving. fight for me here i mean if you look at it I, I mean i'll say right outright you're talking about teacher unions you're talking about entrenched unions that are supposed to protect um, the workers' interest, but they have gone so far off script that they are now crippling and giving the people who are at most vulnerable in our society, they're giving them the worst quality product. And you use the term Soviet style. And I literally put in my show notes after reading your book, it's almost as if we're running our school system like it would be run in communist Russia. We're literally rewarding people for doing nothing, for not having outcomes. We've, we've disconnected the outcome from the compensation and from the strategy. I mean, it would be like having a basketball game and, and saying it doesn't matter who scores the points. It doesn't matter who puts the ball in the basket. Or, or, or running a vaccine program saying it doesn't matter if it has efficacy. It just matters that you showed up and worked on the vaccine. Right. So, but the, the big problem and why I didn't spend a lot of time fighting unions or the status quo or anything is that, you know, K through university is a trillion dollar a year business. You know, charity's not going to make much of a dent 
in that. A mm. uh, trillion dollars is a lot of entrenched interests. Uh, you know, just in New York City alone, they spend $32 billion a year on the district schools. Uh, so uh, a, a small band of charters, not going to win that battle. There's a lot of no. money and entrenched interests. And so in the book, I said, you know, something I used to tell my students at Columbia, I, you know, I would ask them, well, how do you beat Tiger Woods? And the answer is don't play him in golf. So in mm. other words, I don't want to be a uh, head on collision, you know, uh, with the entrenched interests here. What I want to do is look for solutions. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to fix the district schools or do as much as we can to fix our current system. But if we want change, certainly in my lifetime, you know, I, in the book, I took some time to point out what's going on as you're suggesting, but I'm really more interested in how do we solve these things quickly. And I think uh, the way the world works now, I think we have a great chance to do an end run. In other words, don't play Tiger Woods in golf, do an end run around this current system rather than bang my head against the wall, trying to get crushed by a trillion dollars uh, set up against, uh, you know, me, you know, face the current system. So I made some suggestions in the book uh, about how we could do that. And I actually said that uh, companies like Google, Microsoft, Amazon, JP Morgan, these are the solutions. I'm not saying yes. it's their responsibility, but I uh, having a diverse worse workforce, and I go through the stats of that, is actually very valuable for these businesses. They're also under a lot of fire, you know, because they're, you know, they're semi-monopolies, they're, they're too powerful. Successful. They're successful, yeah. Yeah. When, when so, we get back from this final break, I want to talk about the solution that you came up with, which is absolutely stunningly brilliant. When we get back on This Week in Startups. Do you wish you were in on some of these amazing IPOs in 2019 and 2020? Well, with our crowd, O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D, accredited investors can invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have already benefited from companies going public like Beyond Meat uh, or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, Oracle. Our crowd's investment professionals leverage their extensive networks and they review some of the most promising private companies and startups in the world. And as you review these deals, you'll have access to our crowd's investor relation team. And they have already invested hundreds of millions of dollars in over 200 companies with dozens of exits. Accredited investors can participate in a single company deal for as little as 10K. And you can get into one of our crowd's funds for as little as 50K. You can join our crowd's investment in Blue Green Water Technologies, a startup that keeps our water safe. It turns out global water supplies are under attack from toxic algae blooms, and that makes some water undrinkable. Blue Green's proprietary EPA-approved technology eliminates that toxic algae from poisoning the world's water resources. So you can get in early on Blue Green. I just invested in Cyabra, which is an AI-enabled platform that uncovers online disinformation and defects. So that's a cool idea, right? We're going to need to get that solved. So I put a bet, and I went to rcrowd.com slash twist to review the deals. I found that deal, and there's no payment involved until you decide to invest, which is amazing. You can just read all these deal memos. You can peruse. Get in there and just read all the deal memos you can. And our crowd has some great deal flow. And I just made an investment there for the first time. Rcrowd.com slash twist. Joel Greenblatt is with us. The book, Common Sense, The Investor's Guide to Equality, Opportunity, and Growth. You talked a little bit about a solution. Uh, charter schools obviously are a solution. They've been <laughs> ankled. Uh, and people have fought them and created so much red tape for them. I mean, the, the de Blasio stories you go into, 
I mean, this guy is a complete disaster. I mean, I'm not going to make you say it, but just as a former New Yorker living in California now, and I'm watching this crazy behavior. I mean, they really tried to scuttle every single charter school. They said if they broke 250 students, then they had to unionize, but they, they, and, and they kind of made double rules for them where they couldn't get around that. And and they wouldn't give them space, even though there was unlimited space available. Uh, and and then forcing them to add administrators and all this cruft. Uh, I mean, not only were they De Blasio and this cohort content to create a terrible product, they were actively trying to destroy the innovative product. I mean. It was, it's just dark. I'm going to leave it at that, let you read these stories in the book. And again, we're going to keep our eyes on where the puck's going and a solution and not playing Tiger Woods at golf. We're going to try to get him to the chessboard. And the chessboard for you, as you pointed out before the break, Google, Facebook, etc. at Al, they all are under a bunch of scrutiny because they've been so successful. I want to get into that. And if we should break those companies up or not in your mind, uh, I have strong feelings on it. But you said, hey, they need specific types of people, and they don't care about college credentials anymore. They used to be obsessed with it. They now care about skills. And that seems to have burned uh, a little connection in your mind. Explain it. Sure. So in the book, I I suggested uh, that these companies like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, uh, you know, pursue something called alternative certification. Uh, and what that is, is I'm not, uh, that if, let, let's just, for example, you want to get a job, uh, Microsoft's looking for employees in their HR department. Hmm. And what I suggest Microsoft do is say, which tests, which courses, which certificates can you get in lieu of a college education? Which can you pass or do well on? Which tests, which certificates, which courses can you take in lieu of a college degree? that we will consider for a high-paying job in our HR department. I'm not suggesting that uh, Microsoft make tests. I'm not suggesting they administer tests. I am just suggesting they set standards. Hmm. And if they set standards of what are these tests, what are these courses, uh, you know, McKinsey has, uh, they, they could be literacy tests or uh, certificate programs or, uh, you know, Imbolus together with McKinsey has set up game-based tests, which supposedly tell you how good you are at decision-making and critical thinking skills. Doesn't matter what these tests are, just has to correlate with what they think will make a good employee, but not a college degree. Uh, once they set these standards, it'll set up a whole ecosystem of uh, supportive services, online resources, tutoring services to help people pass these. Uh, we already proved with charters and the best district schools that with the right support, these kids can do it. So mm. it's not a question of ability, the 10 over 11, 10 out of 11 who are not getting college degrees. So what can we do with, for them? We say, look, these are the courses, tests or certificates that you need and we will consider you for a high paying job at HR instead in lieu. And they don't have to make the test. They don't have to administer them. They just have to say, what are they are? And mm. then uh, uh, capitalism will take over. There'll be an ecosystem developed of uh, supportive resources, I said, tutoring and online resources. They'll be rated like Uber drivers and Airbnb rentals. You know, so people will know which ones to do. You don't need any government involvement at all. And uh, the costs will be much lower. 
uh, and we can short circuit. We can run around. You know, we don't play Tiger Woods in golf. We don't worry about the college degree. These 10 out of 11 got screwed in the current system. How can we do an end run? Uh, and I talked about how in Africa, with no resources, uh, about a cell phone company that set up, you know, these are uh, a cell phone company turned into a $3 billion business that got sold a few years later. In, and they sold cell phones in countries that don't have roads, that don't have mm. electricity. Really so who's, buy, so who's yeah. buying a cell phone? Well, uh, they figured out how the locals can afford 25 cents rather than walking three days to the next village to sell their crop. It was worth 25 cents to pay for a phone call to see what the prices were. Uh, so they could start with a little bit of money to uh, build cell towers. They had to do rudimentary roads to get to the cell towers and bring electricity and jump started the whole thing. And so once there's a buyer, so that we they found the buyer, the 25 cents it was worth people, they scrounged up 25 cents to talk on the phone. Uh, and now there's a buyer. These big companies, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, are now saying, we're the buyer. Pass these exams, pass this certificate program. We'll, we're buyers. Now the supportive system sets up. And it's happened in so many, you know, I quote Clay Christensen many, many times of how this happens, uh, about how disruption happens. And this is exactly how it happens. You know, the uh, Apple computer, when it came out, as you know, probably a lot of your listeners know, uh, cost about $2,000. Uh, it couldn't compete with a $200,000 mini computer uh, that needed 10 engineers to run. But eventually it kept getting a little better. It ran on a little different track and it was eventually able to compete. And so I would say that this alternative certification over time may not be able to compete with college degree right away, but I think very shortly uh, it will be. And all we need is the jump start from these big companies. And I think a lot of other companies will take the standards set by Google, Microsoft, JP Morgan, and use those standards for themselves. Hey, this right. makes a good employee if they pass these exams. And I think we can sort of do an end run around the current system. Absolutely. If you just think about what's happened in the developer space, those companies had such an acute need for developers and there was such a shortage of developers that they did this type of thing in the in the developer space where we have had code schools uh you're in new york so you know a bunch of them um just absolutely flourish and they did it with uh charging ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars a year but there's free code camp and there's lambda school which we've made a little investment in um and other services online where you can learn this either for pay or with this new device a financial device called an isa which has existed by uh, milton friedman came out with them and they, and they did some yale experiments on them that failed because they pulled the isas as opposed to making them individual and they didn't connect them to a specific job like you're proposing but with these isas Working in developers, we just invested in a company that's doing it for people in marketing and growth. And I think it's going to go right down the line where you start essentially a trade school and online school. It's a 10K or 20K ISA income sharing agreement, which means you only get paid that money as a school if the person gets a job over $50,000 a year and they can pay it back over whatever it is, five or 10 years, and then they're released from the ISA. Do you, as somebody who works in finance, what do you think of this financial device of the school only gets paid if you get a job that pays over X amount? You know, uh, I love that model. I don't know how big it uh, can get uh, very quickly. I think that uh, another way 
that we can get to alternatives. Like Google, for instance, has created six-month certificates already. Yeah. They created those certificates in, in about three technical areas. So that's really a nice start. Uh, but those are technical areas. There's only three. Google had to uh, write those uh, programs. Hmm. Uh, and I'm suggesting something much easier. Uh, ISO would be one method to get there. But I think if we just set standards, hmm. uh, it's it's much easier for them. Obviously, they'll have to do some research. They're very good at data, I heard at these companies, <laughs> uh, to look at what correlates with uh, you know good job performance here. And I think all they have to do is set the standards. And, and there will be many, many different ways that people can learn. It doesn't have to be taking a formal course. It could be online. You know, That's where charity can make a difference here. Uh, that's where community uh, can get together to help people take different courses. It doesn't have to just be in technical areas. It can be in all kinds of areas. I describe that in the book. Like I said, the HR department or the marketing department it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a computer programming, which I think is the first place that everyone's gone because it is a very clear avenue. And I think that's great. But I'm not asking anyone to make courses or give tests. I'm just asking them to set standards. And then the ecosystem sets up in so many different ways. And one of the great ways that could be is in these uh, courses that get paid from people actually getting the jobs uh, later on. So I, lo I love that system, but I think it's going to be much broader than that. That'll just be one of the avenues people can pursue. Yeah, I'm looking at two other ISA investments. I don't know if you invest in the private markets, uh, but I'll loop you into them if I, if I get a, a deal structured. Um, but there are people who are now doing platforms for ISAs. And this one company I was talking to, they provide, you know, like Amazon Web Services, almost like a cloud to anybody who wants to start a school, and then they don't have to worry about all the infrastructure for setting up ISAs, they'll manage all that for them and outsource it. And they actually have done it with trade schools like plumbers and electricians. So you can take this plumbing and electrician, or th those schools already existed, but they were having a hard time getting people to sign up for $20,000 or $10,000 to take it. And then when they did ISAs, all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, I don't have to put up the 10k and take the risk. Great, I'll do it. We, we actually have a shortage of plumbers and electricians that's happening. The average age of those professions now is over 50. And nobody wants to take those jobs. They don't even know how to get started in them. And, and there are other places in the world where those professions are looked at as really great ones. Uh, let's let's shift and, and move over uh, in terms of... Uh, hmm, I got two places I could go. Okay, I think I'm going to go with the EITC. The Earned Income Tax Credit. I have been looking at the minimum wage. The minimum wage is seven twenty-five. For those of people who don't know, it that's the federal minimum wage. In cities like Seattle, San Francisco, and New York, they have been uh, in Florida uh, recently with their ballot measure, uh, all committed to a fifteen-dollar minimum wage. I think the first to get there was Seattle. San Francisco is almost there. New York's almost there. And at the same time as this has occurred, Amazon. Uh, which is hated by a lot of the AOC crowd and the Elizabeth Warrens of the world, very personal, bitter attacks from the socialist party in, or the growing socialists in, party in America or compassionate capital, whatever they want to call themselves or socialists in my mind. They have been riding them hard. Amazon just got ahead of it. They said, we're going to charge $15 an hour. The gig economy was giving people options. And pre-pandemic, we had the lowest unemployment in the history of the country. It was extraordinary, high-functioning capitalism with a massive competition for the lowest-paid employees. Whoever thought we would see that? Everybody thought it was going to be the opposite. 
what happened in the marketplace where companies got into this rabid competition for low-end employees, entry-level, whatever you want to call them, um, that drove companies, I think Walmart also went to 11 or $12 as their minimum wage because they're getting crushed because they can't find employees. And even McDonald's, which I don't know how you feel about that company, I have ties with them, they were actively fighting minimum wage increases for the last two decades, and they just agreed to stop fighting the minimum wage. So they haven't decided to advance it, but let's let's open up minimum wage and, and start with pre-pandemic. How did we get to the place where capitalism worked and you had a rabid, um, absolute dogfight to get gig workers and entry-level employees? What went so right? Sure, well. Or, or is it right? Did it go right? Sure. Well, the, the, the general economist problem with minimum wage is that if you're if you're contributing eight dollars worth of value and you force people to pay you fifteen dollars, uh, a few things happen. One, you know, those places go out of business or they're not competitive or two, they use technology to uh, substitute as much as possible because, uh, you know, that's not a that's not a good economic bargain. If, if someone has eight dollars of skills that they can contribute and you're forced to pay them fifteen dollars. And so what I talk about in the book is uh, earned income tax credit. Nothing I invented. It's actually our third biggest social welfare uh, program in the country where basically uh, for mostly people with families, we give them extra money. If you're willing to get a job and, and, and willing to work, we'll pay you more. Okay. And it would be nice if we could pay everyone 15 to $20, you know, with the earned income tax credit. We, uh, in 2018, which are the data I use in the book, we spent $68 billion, third biggest, uh, social welfare program in the, in the country. Uh, you know, uh, but, and, and it's a great program. I mean, we take six million kids out of childhood poverty with that 68 billion. Uh, but there are studies at, uh, University of Chicago that show that, uh, actually the net cost is closer to nine billion. We spend 68 billion, but I, I took the view of an investor in, you know, all of the chapters in the book. And on this one, it turns out because of the extra employment taxes, the sales taxes, we collect the lower social welfare costs for getting people that working that wouldn't have worked because we're paying them more with the earned income tax credit, meaning it's kind of reverse income tax. If you're willing to work, we'll give you a little more money. Mm. Uh, uh, and we, we give that 68 billion uh, because of the lower social welfare costs and the low and the more taxes we collect, the net cost actually works out to $9 billion. Mm. And so, you know, I suggested that if we wanted everyone to who is willing to work, that's why I'm not for universal basic income. But if you're willing to work, I, I think everyone should get paid well. It's just mm -hmm. that you can't force businesses to pay people more, at least from an economic standpoint. It's not going to work out well if someone's contributing eight dollars and you're forcing them and you're forcing a business to pay them 15. So what I'm suggesting is you're willing to work. Uh, if we could pay everyone 15 to 20 dollars an hour. Uh, minimum uh, supplement their incomes from the private sector with the government extra funding to 15 to 20 dollars now that would cost a trillion dollars we're spending 68 billion that would cost us a trillion dollars but if you go through the same logic the net cost after the extra taxes we collect and the lower social welfare other social welfare programs that uh, people are now working it would net cost would be about 600 billion but here's the thing 
We now have, uh, there was a study at the uh, Washington University that looked at the cost of childhood poverty. Uh, and, and that's uh, child, poor childhood health care, poor education, crime, incarceration, uh, homelessness, social service costs. That's actually costing us right now a trillion dollars a year. So if we're we basically making bad bets on um, backstopping the impact of this low, uh, these low wages when we could just solve it at the front end. And you don't bring up race in the book, but we do have a race issue in this country. We've seen it explode during the pandemic. Um, and it is, it is an open wound in this country. I think we'd all agree that we want to heal. And a lot of this is economic inequality. I think everybody would agree. Of course, there's policing and other things that are unfair. Uh, but if you solve the economic problem, I think you would have less people feeling like the system is so rigged against them. And instead of incarcerating people and, and having a horrible education system that ankles them from ever succeeding or makes it unlikely 10 out of 11 don't succeed, you could just put redeploy that money and just take the wager that if we if we give them the earned income tax credit which right now just so people get an idea of just how de minimis this is we're talking about for a single cup single or couple $538 a year one child $3500 a year two children 6000 a year and three children plus $6600 a year it's not like people are taking this money and uh, putting it in a savings account, they're spending it to live. So all this does is increase monetary velocity, right? It's in everybody's interest to put this money into people's pockets. And during the pandemic, we had a dry run of UBI. We just airdropped $1,200 into everybody's account. And did you, didn't you find it interesting? I don't know. I found it fascinating. Everybody debated UBI. Uh, you know, oh, people's motivation. Oh, is it sustainable? Let's look at Alaska. Let's look at other places. UBI, Saudi Arabia, other places it exists. It causes all these problems. If people stay home, they, they get into substance abuse, domestic violence, all this kind of stuff. They don't have motivation to live, yada, yada. And then we just airdrop $1,200 into everybody's account. And not one person complained about it, including conservatives, Republican, physical, fiscally conservative people. We did it and it worked. It did. What did you take from that? UBI experiment, if you could call it that, or an earned income tax credit in the case of the PPE, was it PPE loans? Yeah, PPE loans. That was an, in a way like an EITC, right? Well, I think a lot of those people really had a, you know, when you hide in your house and, and don't go to work, uh, some of the lower income people don't get paid or lose their job. And, and so that's a lot different. Uh, a universal basic income would uh, be you get a certain amount every month no matter what whether you work or you don't work or whatever and we can argue about that I'm just saying if you're willing to work uh, we could get everyone paying uh, we could get everyone earning 15 to 20 dollars an hour uh, with this supplement uh, mm -hmm. and I go through the math in the book that we'd actually make money we'd get rid of about half a childhood poverty uh, we'd get 400 billion more in taxes uh, we'd have uh, 200 billion less in adult medical costs. And so it actually, we would make money. So as an investor, we can take that money uh, and make everyone earn 15 to $20 without making the private sector do it. As mm. far as the UBI is concerned, I, I like to encourage work. We can get into the discussion. I'm not against it, it, but I don't yeah. think this was a very good discussion. 
COVID was not a good experiment for, it was really making up a giant hole uh, that people lost uh, in income. It wasn't Yeah, so we don't actually money. get the proper results from it to actually know if it works. The UBI, the reason to be against UBI, I think we're both simpatico on this is, I mean, I, I've had weeks of vacation or been in between companies and for two or three weeks, I lose my mind if I'm not productive. Human beings, we built, I mean, the, the definition of humans as a species, we build tools and we're productive and we build a society. That is what differentiates us from from other uh, mammals and, you know, beings on the planet. If you take away purpose and something to wake up to do and find meaning, I think people lose their minds and it's chaos because we can see that right now. Talk about an experiment. People being at home, the, the amount of depression and mental illness that we're seeing from people just having to stay home and some people are lucky enough to work, some people aren't. I mean, UBI would be a disaster for human motivation. What will happen to these people's minds if they sat for 12 hours a day and just left to their own devices? Like, I think the, the experiments we've had, it's resulted in in some cases, radicalization, because you have nothing to do all day. People have been radicalized in the Middle East who have had UBI. And then in Alaska and other places, UBI, it's led to people having nothing to do and, and substance abuse. That, that is that is the truth of this, isn't it? You know, I, I, that's my concern with it. I, I, you know, I'm all for experimenting because, uh, you know, I, I would love to see the results of that. I, I would just say that when you have a job, as you say, there's purpose, you learn skills, you can develop, you can move up. Uh, and I, and I would rather, you know, unless there's obviously if you have some kind of disability that prevents you from working, I completely understand and we should be helpful. But if you are able bodied and can work, uh, and you can find any job and you could make at least 15 to $20 an hour, I'd rather encourage that because keeping people in the workforce, uh, with a purpose, uh, uh, contributing, uh, learning, uh, I, I think that would be a great, great thing for our nation. I think we can afford to do it, not only afford to do it, but actually I show in the book from an investment standpoint, make money doing it. So that would, that's pretty that's cool. That's what's so convincing about your book, Joel. This is why this book is great is because you actually not only like it doesn't you seem apolitical to me in this regard you just want to see the problem solved by the most efficient model possible which comes from years and years of placing bets and managing money and you just you get to hang out with really smart people right in the job line that you and i both have you get to hang out with people who've solved problems all day and something's going to rub off because you're making bets on them elizabeth warren uh seemed to resonate with a large number of people she actually believes in vouchers and charter schools which is very interesting, right? Or she didn't? Uh, well, that's very interesting. So I point out that in 2004, I believe it is, she wrote a book uh, that was in favor of school choice. Uh, when she ran for president, she totally uh, uh, changed her tune and uh, is only for, uh, is not for school choice, is for just uh, because she believes it, it takes money out of the district schools. So I do talk about that, that she's yeah, had a so total 180-degree turn, uh, but she certainly understands the problem. I mean, the way she our schools are- Come on, she sold out. She, in order to be a Democrat and get the, and to get, for a Democrat to actually get the nod, you can't be a business person. You have to be woke and you have to be, you have to toe the party line, which is every time you give people choice, it results in the this- existing corrupt school system to get worse that, now that might be true but it's already terrible so what do we have to lose here like people are protecting a system that is failing it's infuriating 
Well, you know, I think most teachers uh, are educated. Uh, they might be able to get, uh, many of them could get better jobs in better places. So they're very dedicated. But if you put them in a, a, a failing system, one, uh, you know, if you're teaching seventh grade and your kids are reading third grade level, uh, you know, yeah. who, who's to blame for that? It's a very hard job. But teaching, you should, you know, I've just been more involved in schools and teaching is a really hard job. And I tip my hat to the teachers. It's exhausting. But they are stuck in a, a system that is a Soviet style system that doesn't have the usual uh, consequences to poor performance. And so, uh, you know, I was thinking of it more the other day. I was trying to think of an analogy. And let's say that you moved into an, uh, you had to eat at the same restaurant every day. Hmm. And uh, let's say there are some restaurants that uh, have bad service, uh, bad food and bad atmosphere. And you have to go to the restaurant that's in your neighborhood. And that's where you have to eat every meal. So who's going to end up in that neighborhood with the bad food, bad service and, and uh, people with no choice? And, People with no choice. The, and that's what happens with schools. It's very, very uh, unfair. Uh, so all I would say is I'm for school choice to fix that system. But I do think the great thing, the optimistic thing is these kids can do it. The, the mm. best charters, the best district shows the kids can do it. And I think we have now with the Internet and and the ability of these large companies to put together standards and yeah, and right all right. the opportunities for tutoring services and the, and the way education is being developed all over the place. Um, I'm really optimistic, actually, about uh, the opportunity set. Uh, and it won't be through the traditional system. Hopefully, that a pressure that'll put the, yes. the Soviet system under stress. Meaning, Cold war if, time. We, if yeah. we can run around the system, if there's if if they can produce results uh, outside the current system, I think it'll help make the current system better. And that that's maybe the push that we need. She she was also for this wealth tax insanity. At least in my mind, I'm using the word insanity. We saw wealth tax in France and how that went. All the top earners left. We're seeing California and New York raise taxes and. Uh, the, and New Jersey, and the more they squeeze, the more people go to Miami and Austin and, and low-tax states. What do you think about these wealth tax proposals where you have to then go take every asset you own, get a valuation of the piece of art on your wall, the car in your driveway, the everything you own, and then even if you own a private company, you have to then get the company valued and then pay... 1% of its value, even though it's illiquid, even though the painting on your wall that may have appreciated is illiquid, is the wealth tax, and I mean, I mean do you agree with me? The wealth tax is like an insane idea and just the, the, would create chaos and move people out of, because people can move. People forget that, but we're seeing it right now. My contemporaries in the Silicon Valley, your contemporaries in New Jersey and, and, and New York City are fleeing to save 12, 13% tax, a 1% wealth tax compounded is, is, a, is a similar tax over a decade. Do you believe in it or not? Yeah, if I had one word, I'd say, no, it's ridiculous. It's never worked anywhere. Uh, it would destroy the public markets because who would ever go public again if you had a daily quote that moved up and down? Let's just say they were wrong. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting, you know, as at least in the private markets and the same things happened in the public markets. You know, if you owned WeWork one week and it was worth $47 billion and Oof. a week later it's on the brink of bankruptcy and then you try to apply a wealth tax to one of those valuations on the wrong date. Uh, 
I would just say it would be interesting, but it's also unworkable. So I think it's really just sort of a political discussion that people have when they're running for office. But in practical sense, it w- it, I would hope that it'll never happen. Wherever it's been tried, it's been a complete failure. Um, don't think we'll have to discuss it very much. I mean, other than in a theoretical sense. And then when people go through all the practical problems with it that you're discussing and, and all the disaster it will uh, cause people spending time doing things that are completely unproductive. Uh, you know, that's fine. Look, I am for people paying their taxes and I think we should have uh, fair taxes, but you know, some of the things that have been discussed that get your tax rates, you know, in some of these cities up in the uh, high fifties or low sixties seem not sustainable for those States anyway. And I think that that would destroy those States. So, I mean, um, California is, they, they are, have, we have out of control spending, San Francisco out of control spending. And then they want to layer on top of this higher taxes in a dysfunctional society. It doesn't make no sense. You, well, you we get into, a, you get, let me just answer real fast. One yeah. of the great things we have is 50 states. Mm, and so yum, there'll yum. be some canaries in the coal mines that, you know, expo- you know, Illinois might be first. I don't know, but that'll, <sighs> fall under the weight of ridiculous taxes and regulations and uh, overspending. And so hopefully people will learn from the canaries in the coal mine. It won't happen to all 50 states. That's all. We, we I mean, I, when I was, when I first made a little bit of money, I uh, got obsessed with trying to protect my downside because I, I grew up poor and I was so scared. I was trying to figure out where to put this money that I wouldn't lose it. And I found out about these municipal bonds that were revenue backed. And I was like, wait a second, you're saying that Everybody who goes over the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, that money first goes to the bondholders. Oh my God, I need that bond. <laughs> and when I talk to them, like you're, you're kind of crazy, Jason. These other bonds that are not revenue backed, we've never had. We've never really had a major jurisdiction go bankrupt. It's happened like, you know, in small towns in Texas, somebody has a twenty-five million dollar lawsuit, and the town's only got five million dollars in revenue. They they went bankrupt, but we never see these bonds go bankrupt. We could see. A San Francisco and New York and Illinois, like you're saying, reached reach a breaking point. Is that even possible that a major city could go bankrupt? Uh, you know, get bailed uh, out? You know, I think we'll see at some point that happen. Yeah. And like I said, there's a lot of cities and, and some are more responsible than others. And so hopefully the canaries in the coal mine will be lessons for the rest that mm. uh, it has to stop. You know, the, the only guys who can print money are is the federal government yep. and the state governments can't print. So I think, you know, the facts balance. will come home to roost at some point for some of the more irresponsible states and cities. All right, we're rounding third base here. Joel, you've been very generous with your time. Mr. Greenblatt, this book is incredible. It's concise. And you get into one of my favorite topics, Another hot potato uh, topic that people just feel very uncomfortable talking about for some insane reason, which is immigration and other high functioning societies. And also this dovetails with uh, pensions and savings. One of my favorite places to go on the planet, Australia, has figured out both of these things. And I was reading your book on, wow, he must know a lot about Australia, I bet, because uh, having spent some time there myself, I've been there three or four times. They have some of the highest function cities, the best places to live in the rankings of cities around the world. And they've gotten two things right. One is they force people in something called super, uh, which stands for super, 
What is it called? Annuation. Super, what is it? Super annotation, right? Annuation. Yeah. Annuation. Super annuation. They get right. I think. I'm gonna see if I think you agree. And the other thing they get really well, although it's controversial, is they, like Canada and other people, have a point-based system for immigration and they really have thought deeply about immigration and who to let into the country first obviously you have to have some compassion in there and then you have japan which is just like nobody can come here <laughs> nobody can get citizenship and and nobody looks at japan and says oh my god this is a terrible society these are horrible people but here in our united states it's become so po polarized and so tribalistic you can't even have a reasonable discussion about pensions and savings or immigration what can we learn from what australia did right in these two instances and what should we be doing here in america Sure. So, uh, great question. So, we can take on immigration first. And Let's do it. what I talk about in the book is skilled immigration uh, because that's easy. Uh, according so easy. to the Business Roundtable, we come in second to last welcoming, welcoming skilled immigrants. We only beat Japan, and Japan, uh, that's embarrassing because Japan actively discourages immigrants. And you have to speak Japanese, really, to make it in Japan. We, you know, English is a universal language of business and science, and so we have a huge advantage there. So to come out of to second to last, only to Japan out of all the developed nations in welcoming skilled immigrants is crazy because they're a free gold mine. Uh, if you look at the data, for every skilled immigrant we take in, uh, we make be, uh, between a half a million and a million dollars. That means we collect more in taxes versus the service we give them uh, in current dollars. We, you bring one in, we make half a million to a million dollars, and we get almost They're profitable. Two it's a profitable deal. It's a it's a money making business, and and we not only get they don't take our jobs; they create two new jobs for every one we take in. And, and 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 these are the stats. It's a free gold mine. So here's some amazing stats. Immigrants founded 51% of U.S. startups over a billion dollars. Of course. Uh, twice, as twice as likely. Yes, exactly. Twice as likely to start a business as natives, responsible for a quarter of productivity growth over the last 20 years. And immigrants or their children founded 216 of the 500 Fortune 500 companies. Steve Jobs was an immigrant's son. So those are all incredible stats. So it's a free gold mine. We're throwing it away. We came in second to last. We have this ridiculous H-1B program that fills up in the first five days. We go three times over our limit on taking people on H-1B. And there's a much simpler solution. And we actually have a, a leg up over Canada and Australia. We have a much better solution than uh, that we're able to do than they have. They have a point system, as you described. And, you know, just because you're good at... Uh, you have a degree or you have some skill set doesn't mean you're ambitious doesn't mean you know you there's a good fit for you with a job you could have bought the degree are. let's be honest right you could have bought your degree in another country and the government standards are set that doesn't mean that they're good government standards for who we're right. going to let in or whatever so our system in this one sense is better our h1b system it's an employer wants to hire you so it's a one-to-one -one fit we have someone mm. who wants to hire you so all i suggest is if you're willing to hire some if uh if you can get a job if you're an immigrant skilled immigrant an employer wants to get you give you a job for 60 or seventy thousand dollars a year which means you have some skill and you're and the employer is willing to pay a 20% tax on top of that, they can take as many skilled immigrants as they want. Obviously, Perfect solution. 
obviously, if you can hire someone domestic and you don't have to pay the 20% tax, you'll do, do it. You're not of taking course. that job. It's I mean, right uh, above the 15% benchmark of meaningful to somebody, right? You got to really think about 20%. 10% you wouldn't think about. 20% you got to think it through. And the H-1B visa, by the way, is completely fugazi. When I was in IT, they would say every meeting would occur, how much cheaper is that employee? Is it worth the $5,000? And then we will be able to give them low raises because if it's so cruel, the H-1B visa, if you lose your job, you have to leave the country within, I think, 30 or 60 days. So we've created this perverse... I don't want to say indentured servitude because these are high paying jobs and it's maybe a little offensive to say it that way. But in a way, you you create such a weird incentive where the employer has so much power over these IT people who typically were coming from India and then Americans were losing their jobs. And every conversation I ever heard on the board of a company when they brought up H-1B was cost savings. They were doing it explicitly cost savings. So your solution takes that perverse incentive out of it and incentives as you talk about in the book matter so you know you know people leave their countries uh for political freedom or safety lack of opportunity and we have those things in spades so the, those countries who have those things have brain drains what's called a brain drain we should be a brain magnet we mm. have all those things in spades uh, the only thing I would say about immigration is, you know, obviously, what about people who want to seek refuge here or a better life? And what I suggested in the book is, if we take in two skilled immigrants, we can take in eight to, it costs us money to take in an unskilled immigrant. Sure. And if you want to take that money be, between the extra jobs we get, Bill Gates says we get four, we create four new jobs for every skilled immigrant we take. Okay. Mm -hmm. Over at Microsoft. But if we take two skilled immigrants in and you want, and you think it's important, we should take, we can take, we can afford to take eight to 10 unskilled immigrants in, or Perfect. we can take eight to 10 kids who are already here out of childhood poverty. We could spend the money on that. And I don't want to get in that argument. All I said in the book was we should take the free money and then decide what to to do with it yeah and so that's take the money and then split it up 50 50 flip a coin uh and and figure out how you're going to disperse it and then we have 10 million people here who are, are, are illegal already want this could be a path to uh, allowing those hard-working people who are again incredibly vulnerable and it's unfair we could work towards getting them uh to be uh yeah so let's let's close on the 401k yeah, and then okay, I got to so, have you back on the pod in a year okay, to great. just talk about everything again, because you are a super guest. I no, put you in the category you. of super guest, like you're, you're so insightful and concise with the answers. I love it. When we look at pensions are gone. Let, I mean, the only people have pensions is, is you know, like firefighters and, and people who are at super high risk, burning and running into burning buildings and stuff like that. It, that's kind of going away. But when I was in, I spent my time in Australia, they kept talking about the super funds, the super funds. And it was a little controversial. Some people were like, ugh. And, and there were maybe some issues where people were maybe skimming too much fees. And people have multiple accounts. Like we had a problem here with some of the banks doing that kind of fugazi stuff on the side. But overall, people are very calm with their 15, it's actually a $20 minimum wage, basically in American dollars. People there are happy. They got essentially a $20 minimum wage. And they don't worry about their retirement. They feel good about it because they're participating in the markets because they have super. Explain why this is working so well and how this is a potential solution for us as we wrap. Okay, well, 
Well, there's things we can learn from Australia. They, they mostly have private savings and uh, they take advantage over there. Uh, the most important thing to have good retirement savings is to be able to use compound, the, the power of compound interest or compound mm. investing uh, to get money. If that doesn't work out for you because either you made bad decisions or just investments in general didn't do well, Australia has a supplemental system that makes up for it so that you end up with enough savings. It's kind of like a guarantee to, to get your superannuation fund if you didn't save enough before you retired. They'll even top you off. They'll top you off. So they automatically, it's moving up to about 12% of what you earn instead of Social Security. It goes into your private savings account. You can choose from a, a lot of different superannuation funds. You can do that. So what I say in the book is people love their Social Security. We're not going to stop that program. So we can waste, I could waste a lot of your time discussing how we can make a better program, but Social Security is here to stay. The only problem with Social Security is if you make 10 or $12 an hour, uh, you're going to end up with about $9,000 a year in retirement. And that's a real problem because nearly half of all working age families have zero retirement savings. Uh, the median family between ages 32 and 61 have 5,000 in, in retirement saving. The average working age, low income, black, Hispanic, or non-college graduate have no retirement savings. The nine to 10 families in the top fifth of income have retirement savings. Nine to 10 in the bottom fifth do not have any. So we need to do something in addition to social security because 9,000 is not gonna cut it. No way. Uh, and so what can we do? And I suggest being an investor that compounding is the answer. Having people start saving early. Uh, with what? Because if you're low income, you don't have a lot of money to save. You need that money to live. If you're young, which is when compounding matters, I go through the compound interest tables in the That was incredible. If people started early, they would retire early, and the compounding is such a the rule of seventy two. Like, my God, if you if you can compound at seven, eight, nine, ten percent a year, oh my lord, and double your money every seven years, yum yum. Well, what, what the example I gave in the book is uh, just saving a couple thousand dollars a year and earning 10% on it. If you started at age 19, put in seven payments and stopped making any payments at all at age 26, that's one person. Or someone who starts at age 26 and puts in 40 payments of $2,000 a year over 40 years, the person who started at age 19 and put in seven payments and never put in another nickel because he started earlier ends up earning more. Than the person who saves for 40 years but started a I little mean, bit later. So, as we both know as investors, those last couple of double ups are the ones that matter. Starting Warren early Buffett matters. became a billionaire at 67, I think, or something. Like it was that last, those last couple of double ups really add up. All right. One, one good reason to get older, I guess. So, <laughs> yes, survive long enough to see your wealth double. <laughs> so, so, what can we do? We people have to start saving early. How can we do that? Well, I don't suggest we raise taxes any more than we have on wealthier people, but I do suggest that, you know, uh, putting into Social Security stops at $128,000. I think that's going up this year, $137,000 actually. Uh, you don't, you don't get taxed on Social Security above that because you don't get any more money from Social Security. It's kind of based on the way the program was set up. What you put in rhymes with what you get out. Uh, if you kept taxing at to unlimited amounts, uh, of course, it wouldn't do that anymore. 
Uh, so what I do is I suggest that you get to keep saving if you make more than 137. These are the wealthier people. They get to save, but we take some off the top. We'll take 15 to 20% off the top. We'll let the rest compound, you know, with tax advantages to make up for that. And we'll take that money and give it to people who are uh, low income Brilliant. and young and let them start coming. That'll be a lot of money for them and let them start compounding. And we can do that either by uh, increasing the limit on 401ks where you can make it voluntary or involuntary. doesn't matter. It's not a higher tax. It's just letting people put in more to their 401k, but taking 15 or 20% off the top because you're getting that tax benefit of having the rest compound, it's giving win, it to win, people win. who need it, give people who need it younger, take advantage of compound. It's the only way out of this mess. We're not, you know, we're not going to change social security. So how do we get those people when they retire to have money, force them to start saving or give them money when they don't have uh, any money when they're young or they're low income, let them take advantage of compounding and hopefully that'll help. All right. Listen, it's brilliant. Uh, I love the idea. It's a win, 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 because the person who's putting that extra money away, they're happy to give up the 10, 15% because they got all the other tax savings. Right. They're saving another 15 percent, I'm sure, on paying if it was capital gains or whatever, you know, depending on which jurisdiction they live in. And then the people who are coming up short win and the government wins because they're not on the hook for managing this thing. And the government sucks at managing these things. What about putting a super fund in parallel? Because that was what I was thinking where you were going with this, which is, hey, we're going to start super now. Everybody's responsible for putting just one percent of their paychecks into a super and the thing with the supers is you can't pull that money out in a 401k you can pull it out and pay all those penalties but my understanding of the super funds in australia is you can only pull money out in the case that you are disabled and can no longer work or you hit a certain age correct so we could have like a forced 401k super kind of program and what i love about the super program is the, the financial literacy of people in Australia is off the charts because they have to pick their super and they're watching it. So it's almost as if you forced everybody above 18 or 19 who's working to understand 401ks. And 401ks in the United States, when you start a 401k program at your company, you can't force the employees to be part of it. I never understood that. Like We should be putting a gun to people's head and saying, you have to learn about your savings. You have to have financial literacy, just like you have to have a goddamn driver's license to drive a car. We let people drive cars and we force them to go to school and then we're on the hook for their retirements and we don't force them to have any literacy. Sure. So I love that program and you have me convinced. I would okay. just say I live in the real world and it's not going to happen here. Uh, people love their social security. I, yeah. I looked at all the political discussions here and I tried to come up with something that was actually doable. Mm -hmm. uh, as much as I love what Australia does, as much as I love what you're suggesting, I wanted to come up with things in my lifetime that might be helpful and what I could see happen. So, mm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be real, uh, realistic with the alternatives that I suggested. Uh, but if I were starting from scratch, I'd go exactly where you are discussing. You, you've been super successful in this career, huh? You made a ton of money, ton of bank. I, uh, you know, uh, I was born at the right time, started in a, a, you know, born to parents who were able to give me a great education, you know, where we moved and uh born in a great country so 
uh, and I, I got out of school at a time where the market was hadn't moved up in 13 years and, Oof, and lost decade, so it's right? been flat. Yeah, well, yeah, I lost 13 years. And so I started at the exact right time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coincidence of coincidence, a lot of people I went to school with also did pretty well. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think I we've done a pretty good job where we are, but uh, I, I have to. You got a third uh, act in you? You think in politics? We think in philanthropy? What are you thinking? Of the, or you just love what you do going to work every day, you know, grinding it out in the markets? You got a third act? Uh, you know, I've I've been writing and teaching for a long time. I love I love uh, writing You're and good teaching, at it. and so I'll I'll think I I that's where I'll spend my time. I you know I'm I'm very excited about putting together programs. I'm doing something where you can invest five dollars a day. You know, along the lines of what I think. Uh, you know, I've been very involved in school reform, so that's a lot of fun for me to learn about, and so. You know, wherever I can be helpful, it'll be fun, but politics won't be one of the places. Got but, uh, you know, maybe sharing ideas and hoping that someone listens, uh, you know, will be fun. You're a great writer, by the way. Just uh, from one writer to another, your book moves very quickly. You're succinct. I don't know if you got a great editor or you just believe in the economy of words, but this book in 200 pages accomplishes more than a lot of the dipshit books my friends are writing who have no experience in life and they spend 500 pages wasting your time it's intentional that you write these books concisely right you you suffer over these words i can tell yeah it's so much easier to write a shorter book you know there's less pages and everything uh, but it it also uh, makes you be more simple and more uh, direct so it's so direct your writing style i wish the only thing i got is you didn't read the book somebody else read it right you you know i didn't listen to the audible Uh, you gotta go do that you have to talk to your publisher they always want some smooth silky talking voiceover artists no offense i'm not trying to you know ankle your business as a a voiceover artist but you should redo it with your voice when it's the author's voice it resonates so well and you get that intonation and i hate that like monotone of these like uh professional voiceover artists you got to read the next one or just read this one when you republish i would have rather heard it in your voice because you're good you're a good podcast guest by the way i heard you oh, on your another podcast, you. capital allocators that's a great podcast too if you haven't heard if you, if you didn't get enough of joel in this hour and a half go over to my pal capital allocators which is a wonky podcast for people who are lps and funds like mine and i guess joel's and um it's a good podcast you like that podcast yeah ted's great yeah ted's awesome he was just a guest on here all right listen joel uh hopefully someday this pandemic is over and me you and ted and some other folks can have dinner or something uh i i really was taken by the book and i'm going to go backwards into the archive if i was going to read another one of your books which one you suggest uh if if you're not that uh knowledgeable about the stock market the little book that beats the market if you want to go to the next level sort of graduate school you can be a stock market genius I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to go to the uh, graduate school one and try to figure it out. Uh, the market is completely uh, overvalued right now. You think, or is this makes sense because of inflation? Uh, you know, it's a, a market of stocks, not a stock market. So uh, what I would say is the Amazon, Googles, and Microsofts don't bother me. Uh, we own a bunch of those. I think those are some of the best businesses we've ever seen. Uh, but there are hundreds of businesses that lost money last year. And on average, if you bought everything that lost money last year, uh, you'd be up uh, almost 100% this year. So, uh, you know, bought all 100, 100 something of those kind, 261 companies that have market caps over a billion. 
Uh, if you bought them all, that lost money last year, the pre-COVID, uh, you would have been up uh, median 50% and, and on average over 100%. So that's a little frothy, I would say. So uh, yeah. that, that portion of the market's frothy. This is like you got that uh, nice cappuccino, but they put so much froth on it, you, you might spill it. Well, you might drink it. It's really hot under there. There's some analogy to that over frothy cappuccino. Be careful with that. Uh, I, I, yeah, I was like, I love this company Peloton. I don't know if you got a Peloton. I'm in like love with my Peloton. I want to buy the stock. And I was like, their, their current market cap is like thirty or $40,000 per subscriber. And I'm like, well, I'm, my lifetime value is like 10 or 20 grand, like at best. And, and I just, I want to buy that stock, but I can't figure out the math. And I'm, I can't figure out if I'm an idiot or I'm a genius. It's humbling the public markets. Well, we don't we don't have one, but we're going to get one. So you know that's more growth. Get the I don't, tread. I don't know. The get treadmill the tread. is next level. It's got a monitor. I kid you not, Joel. It's it's like the size of your computer monitor in front of you. Now it doesn't play Netflix. That's one thing that I don't like about it. But you, you drive a Tesla, I assume. I do not. What? I'm old school. No, I'm old school. What, what what are you pushing? A Range? You got a Land Rover or something? You seem like a Range or a BMW I, I guy to me. Uh, an SUV. Don't don't uh, even ask it. Oh, uh, Porsche Cayenne. Okay, all right. That's that makes sense to me. It's a Porsche Cayenne, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I knew it. Yeah. Um, you got it. You got to you got to get the Model Y, the electric. But that same Porsche experience, I would say Peloton is like a Porsche or a Beamer or a Tesla in that it just feels tight. You know, like that Porsche feels tight. Everything is in the right spot, you know. You can reach the controls, the dob. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're an old school eighties like uh, Wall Street guy. The the Porsche Cayenne is just a no brainer. No, don't say that. But go ahead. Yeah, that's what it is. Okay. I, I'm telling you, you guys all get the BMWs and the Porsche, just like my my boy Bill Gurley's uh, pushing that Porsche Cayenne. All right, listen, Joel. This has been great. Pleasure, everybody. If you hear my voice. Stop what you're doing. Pull over. If you're self-driving, maybe you don't need to pull over. I don't know. I can't give you advice on that. And buy the book, Common Sense, The Investor's Guide to Quality, Opportunity, and Growth. Joel, I wish you ran for office because I can't deal with the shenanigans of this current party system. But God, I don't know if they would. You, you would be a Democrat. I think you would run as a Democrat and they would never have you because you make too much sense. <laughs> All right. This has been great. And uh, we'll see you all next time. <laughs>